0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to As It Stands with Hanson Sale, a podcast about politics, policy, and what is going on in the world, brought to you by The Daily Beacon and me, your host, Hanson Sale. Joining me today to talk more about coronavirus and how the university is responding to the outbreak is University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Chancellor Dondi Plowman. Dondi became the ninth chancellor of the University of Tennessee in 2019 after nine years at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she served most recently as executive vice chancellor and chief academic officer. Before going to Nebraska, Plowman was on the management faculty at UT, where she served for two years as the head of the Department of Management and the Haslam College of Business. Plowman has a doctorate in strategic management, an undergraduate degree with a major in English, and a master's in higher education administration. I've always enjoyed chatting with Chancellor Plowman, and I'm sure you will enjoy hearing her talk too. So let's get started. All right, hello Chancellor Plowman, welcome to As It Stands and thank you for being here.
1: Hey, thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Absolutely. So to start off today's conversation, I want to talk a little bit about the decision-making process when it comes to the coronavirus. We talked a little bit about this with um, President Boyd in one of my previous episodes, Um, but what were some of the primary considerations that you were thinking about when it came to making a decision about coronavirus?
1: So, so let me back up just a little bit and tell you a little bit about the decision-making structure we used. So we have something called an emergency operations center. It's a structure, it's a concept, something you would put in place when you have an emergency. Oftentimes it, it was originated for what if we had a, an active shooter or what if we had a, a tornado or, you know, that kind of thing. So every organization, when you have an emergency, you need people jumping in from all over the campus and using the existing organizational structure doesn't, it takes too long. Mm -hmm. So we had this in place, had not really used it much, stood it up and started started working with it. Uh, And let me just describe how it works. So we have, ultimately we had something like 45 to 50 people that were part of this structure called the Emergency Operations Center. We started calling it EOC. They we were divided into teams, like a team that focused on logistics. So, for example, when we decided to let students come back and move their stuff out of the dorms, but do it in a safe way, that required a lot of people thinking that through. Mm-hmm. What did the health department say would be safe? Uh, and then once we were, de- well, that's when, once we had an act, a case, our first case, we had to make the decision, we, we put that to a halt. So just as an example, that would be a logistical kind of issue. We had a subgroup on communications, a subgroup on um, uh, planning, you know, long-term planning out a decision. So that was sort of the, the operations side. And then we had also a policy group was really me, the cabinet, and a couple of others who would make decisions or we would be contemplating, okay, if we told students not to come back from spring break what are the first five things we need to think about? Mm-hmm. And so we take that back over to the EOC side. They start running that down, bring it back to us. So it was a way of making quick, efficient, but thought through decisions, if you will. And I'm, I'm really proud of that structure. So let's just think about what were some of the first, the, the very first thing we did was we set aside three principles that were going to guide everything that we did, every decision. The first one was we're gonna focus on making sure everybody stays healthy and they stay hopeful. The hopeful part was really important to me because this has at times felt overwhelming to people and we did not want students to lose hope. Like what's happening? This is bizarre. This is not in any playbook about going to college. So healthy and hopeful, that was the first one. The second thing was we are gonna make decisions that keep students on track towards graduation. So it was not acceptable to say, oh, well, everyone will get incompletes or you know those kinds of traditional things. And then the third thing was, I wanted people to, to be creative, be compassionate and be flexible. So those three, we had those on posters sitting around guiding us for several weeks. We put them on social media. And I think that we've done, we've those have been helpful. So I always think when you're as a decision maker, as a leader, having and I, I I taught this when I taught decision making what are the criteria by which you're going to make decisions mm-hmm. not just oh I saw on the news last night something in oh let's go do this but so healthy and hopeful so how would we know for example what was in the best interests of health well we had uh, dr. Spencer Gregg on our on our as part of this group the director of our health center he was in constant communication with the health department so we didn't do anything that was a big decision without consulting them, so that that begins to just give you an outline. Does that help kind of envision what we did
0: for sure and and so understanding the process now, were there any any particularly hard decisions um that could have gone either way and now in retrospect um, you know
1: oh. Uh, I think they were all hard, to be honest with you, because we knew we were, they were going to be heartbreaking for students. They weren't hard in the sense of what's the right thing to do. But let me just give you kind of an outline. We, we started towards the end of January. We knew what was happening in China. There's beginning reports. Very first decision we made was in late January, we suspended any study abroad programs in China. That was the first decision. It's kind of a hard decision because plans were in place for people to have experiences. The next couple of decisions in um, in February, we had to suspend programs in South Korea. We then suspended programs in Italy. You kind of see what was happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we had to make a decision to have students come back from studying abroad. Hard decision in that that was going to be upsetting. But not as hard in terms of if safety, if health and hopefulness is guiding you, we had to bring them home. And it was, it turned out it was the right thing to do. Um, So we've got sort of, I could, you know, a whole timeline of decisions we made. We, we made the decision about um, telling students not to come back from spring break as a system, like the president and the chancellors. We, the five of us, made that decision together. And we wanted to, we didn't want UT Knoxville to do something different than UT Martin. Now, the schools were on different calendars. So, for example, we were just about to go on spring break. UT Martin, I think, was had just come back from it. And they were already back. And I think UT Chattanooga were about to come back. So we were in different places, but we all made the decision that for the next three weeks, everything's online. And looking back on it, you see how optimistic we were and how little information we had. Mm-hmm. We were hopeful that three weeks might do it. Well, quick into not, and and the thing about this decision-making, the information just changed so quickly. And, yeah. and you don't know it, how good the information you have is. So we, from the beginning, said we're going to rely on the CDC guidelines and our health department, and that's really helped us. Because I don't ever want to be in a decision, a a, a place where it looks like the decisions I make are sort of random or not based on any criteria other than sort of a. I don't want someone to accuse me of having made a decision that was sort of a personal whim. Well, certainly, thought was best, but no, it's what the health experts are telling. Us. For
0: sure, and and this sort of gets at the role of the university, you know, as it relates to the community. During such a huge crisis and that we that the the UT system decided to make a system wide decision, I think, was in the best interest of the state of Tennessee and probably students as well. Um, So that's definitely an area where I was I was very impressed. So to move on and get a little bit more specific about Kind of the current outlook and some of the short-term impacts of coronavirus so one thing that i am particularly worried about is we say that we're all in this together which is very much true but in many ways we're not in the same boat Um, there's an unequal impact of the virus across different communities and demographics and students for example, like research shows that first generation students on average have to work more to meet financial obligations. Data shows that African Americans are being infected and dying from coronavirus at a disproportionate rate. Um, They're students with, with underlying health conditions. And so my question there is, we've made some academic changes, but do they go far enough to address these sort of like, disparities across racial lines and and, um, income lines and, and health status as well.
1: Well, let me tell you how I think those issues affected the campus and how we tried to respond to them. So that notion about be compassionate, here's how that guided us. I said from the outset, any student who has a job this semester, they still have a job even after spring break, from home, we are going to give them work that's telecommutable. So I didn't want it to be the case that kind of the, the people with the least power in the system, oh, I didn't want them, quote, laid off from their positions. Mm-hmm. And, and and you're right. So in the in, in the pecking order of things, it could easily be that hourly workers, student workers could be unfairly disadvantaged. So we tried to make sure that we got through this semester without that happening. As we begin to encourage people to telecommute and go home, that's harder on some people than it is on others.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, For example, some, some people's work, it's not that easy to do it at home. If you're a facility worker. Um, One of the things that we did was encourage, we came up with some, ideas about how you could do transformational work at home. If my work, I can do a lot of it from home Mm -hmm. easily, but I have a different type of job than other people in the university. So we said, if you can't, if, if eight hours, if you can't fill eight hours with your work, why don't you do some transformational work? Why don't you do some professional development? Why don't you learn a new language? Why don't you try to rethink your job, how it could be more, efficient or more impactful and so we tried to guide people like that because you're right the way this virus has the way it plays out it doesn't discriminate on who gets it Mm -hmm. but the impact is different so you're right to think about that and one of the things that's happened is that in this first stimulus money that's come through there is some money in there for our most disadvantaged students. And we're in the process of determining how we're going to be able to use that. Some of our students have food insecurity issues. We've set up an emergency student life fund and donors have been giving to it for the purpose of if you don't have food, if you're having trouble, if you're going to get evicted, you know, come tell us what your problems are and let's see if we can try to help. So that's kind of how we as a campus tried to work on it. Uh, but but even the teaching part of this, if you're teaching four courses and have 400 students and they're all emailing you all day and night, that's really been harder. I mean, that's been really hard uh, than if you were teaching two classes and doing your research. Well, for those folks, their research has been put on hold because they've had to put all their effort into this new type of teaching. So yeah, it's been, I think, hard for everyone.
0: For sure, and It's hard hard to put into a policy how to address some of these things. I mean, something that will increasingly be an issue is as coronavirus and the number of cases continues to grow in the state of Tennessee, the more people who will have been affected and will, you know, maybe have someone in their family who is suffering from coronavirus or unfortunately someone who has passed away. And so how do you make a policy that supports those students even through kind of the non-traditional like lines of this is emotionally impactful?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot about leadership in the time of crisis. I think every leader is right now. And this is an unusual crisis because it doesn't have a face and it, it, it's not contained. Like if you have an active shooter, that's a horrible situation. But it is, you're looking for one person and to stop that. And and that's a a difficult situation. It's very different from something that doesn't have a beginning and an end is what it feels like. It's just kind of going on. It doesn't have a face. So that's why the medical experts are so helpful to us. But one of the things I've tried to do through this is to try to over communicate rather than under communicate. So if we create, if we make a decision, I want students to know why we did it. I want faculty to know why we did it. And I also want them to know that I empathize with them. I mean, I'm not going through the same thing as them, but I know it's hard. So I think the leader has a big role in, if you want people to follow the policies you're developing along the way, they got to trust you, that you really are looking out on their behalf. And one of the things that's been amazing about this community, like volunteer, it's just part of who we are, to step forward and act. And people have done that. Er- uh, faculty, staff, students. You know, I actually made a few phone calls. You know, we're trying to call every single student. I don't know if you heard about that or not.
0: Yes, I got my phone call a couple days did ago. Did you? I okay, did. Okay, you did?
1: Okay, great. I love hearing that, confirming it. I, they told me recently there are over 20,000 calls they've made. I made some myself. Oh, wow. But when I would talk to the students, with one exception, every single student was just so gracious, grateful. Uh, some would say, "I know my professor. I don't like it as well, but they're trying hard, and you know they've been really nice." And and so I just think part of being a volunteer that's made this a. I, I feel really blessed to be here and at this place, going through this because everybody has stepped up. Everybody has uh, donors, faculty, staff, and and you students. You know, just the way you've been patient with faculty. Had, they went from zero to 200 miles an hour in 10 days. And we did it.
0: Know mm-hmm.
1: that on, on an average day, we've got around 65,000 participants in Zoom sessions in any given day. Oh, wow. We know that through IT. Now that's across the whole UT system. So that's not all UTK, but it's largely a big hunk of it. That's a lot. So, and we're averaging around 5,000 Zoom classes a day. Wow.
0: Yeah, that that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And so another, I think UT has done a great job of, of moving online. It, it's certainly not in the most optimal situation, but is anyone in an optimal situation? Um, but another sort of lingering part of this that will play out over the next few months is some students will likely take a gap year to make financial to meet financial obligations since so that that could be current students it could be prospective students mm-hmm. um and so And research shows that gap years decrease the likelihood that someone actually returns to school. And so is there anything currently in place, any structures that are supporting and encouraging this particular block of students to make sure that they do return to school?
1: So that's exactly, you're exactly right, Hanson. I mean, and one of the reasons we set out at the beginning to do these personal phone calls to current students was to say, we want you to come back. We're planning on being back in fall. We can't wait for you to come back. What do you need? And you know, the first week of all of this, we did um, a pulse survey of students on day three. And it, I don't know if you remember getting it, but it asked you one question. How are you doing? And the answers were three options. A, I've got this. I'm rocking. Uh, B, I'm nervous but optimistic. C, I'm in, I think I need help and 20% of the students were in that last category. And they were the first students that got those personal phone calls. What do you need? So we put on, we made sure that our academic advising was online, our our tutoring, our student support. And you know, some of that stuff, we need to keep online going forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of a good idea to be able to get help like that without always having to have lock-in appointments. Um, so that was one of the things that we did early on. The other thing is, there's two other things. We then have made personal phone calls to every student that's been admitted, every new student's been admitted for the fall. And we're at about 9,000 on those. And we've gotten really positive feedback from parents. It's like, ah, oh, that's just awesome that I got a call. Um, we are hopeful. Our numbers were looking really good going into the COVID. Um, we want to hold on to people you know, people choose to come to Tennessee because of Mm -hmm. the place. And there's a sense of place here that's important. I mean, people come to Rocky Top. And so another thing we decided to do, we had a really creative team in student enrollment and in student uh, enrollment management and in student success, who came up with the idea of all these balls, these alums crashing in on courses. So Peyton Manning, Josh Dobbs, singers, songwriters, you've seen them. And part of that was we actually hoped we knew we'd put that on social media. So part of that was just to be cool for the students in the classroom. We also wanted other students and prospective students to say, you know what, that is the kind of place I want to go to school. When you see Josh Dobbs, for example, I watched the video of him dropping in on an aerospace class. I don't know if you saw that, but one of the students in the class said, you know, Every time someone hears that I go to UT and study in aerospace, they ask me, do you know Josh Dobbs?" And Josh says to him, well, now you can tell him you do. Now that's awesome. And so those are the kind of things that we've tried to put in place. Students today are getting, this week, they're getting something in the mail, watch for yours, kind of a cool looking little card that has a decal for your laptop to put on there, just to help them remember we love you, we want you back here, you still are a ball, and, we, and you will always, we want you to always be a ball. So, you know, we'll see what happens with the fall numbers. Uh, but that's that's part of our approach.
0: Yeah, and so I guess a question that sort of comes from that is broadband access and, and internet access and connectivity issues. I don't, I mean, I would foresee that that would be a problem, that there would be students for which could not have access I don't know what I mean what is the extent of that issue and are we addressing it in any way
1: so at the very beginning we were concerned about that and so here's what we did I got to give a head uh, real shout out to the IT leadership Chris Amino they jumped right on it we went and purchased a million dollars worth of laptops and hotspot cards and said to students tell us if you need one, we'll loan it to you. And they were shipping them out those first few days. We, I think we shipped out 350 laptops. These hotspots were more in demand for exactly the reason that you, I think we sent about 570 hotspot cards. So we just loaned them to students. Mm-hmm. You know, didn't, didn't worry about what's gonna happen. It's like, you need this, here it is. So the internet access is, is, is an issue. It's also been an issue for faculty and staff trying to do this from home. Early on, we were concerned, for example, every now and then when I'm on Zoom, it'll my internet will freeze up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm on Zoom meetings. I'm not trying to teach a class. So that was a concern for faculty and staff. They've managed it. A lot of calls to the IT help desk, but nothing ever crashed, knock on wood. This is the last week, but... Um, you know, those were issues we, so that's an example of where we use the emergency operations center. Where can we get laptops? How many should we order? How would we get internet access? I heard stories about kids across the state having to drive into the parking lot of uh, Walmart to get internet. We didn't want that for our students. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we put those hotspots out there.
0: For sure. And so, you know, I think there's been a lot of support institutionally and, and just emotionally for a lot of, of students and I think UT has excelled in that way. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the curriculum moving forward because yeah. that, that's a piece of this and so right. number one you know right now we're sort of operating under the premise of normality because we have to in a time that is very far from normal And it has been sort of a critique to our hyper individualistic culture and and sort of forced us to think about the interdependence of our actions because, you know, more than ever before, other people might pay unthinkable prices as a result of our decisions or inactions in some cases. And so what is the role of the university from a curriculum point of view and from just supporting students as it relates to sort of helping everyone students and staff included understand the moral implications of a pandemic.
1: So let's talk about both of those from a curriculum standpoint we got a lot of work to do what what we did was take everything I I like to say we didn't take stuff online we took it to remote learning so most professors, not all of them, but most faculty, we're so grateful to them, just learned how to use Zoom, stepped up, and did it. So students are still logging in. It's 830. This is when my classes begin. I'm on Zoom. It's like I'm in the lecture hall. Not quite as good, but that's called synchronous learning. Asynchronous would be fully online courses where the student can do it at their own on their own timeframe. Time except for maybe when they take their exams or turn in their assignments. So in those situations, there might be some pre-recorded lectures, there might be some animation, there might be some interactivity. We don't have nearly as much of that as I would like for us to have. So one of the things coming out of this is gonna help us think about what part of our curriculum, could we even deliver better? Or should we try to deliver more regularly in an online format? I've put together a task force I'm calling the Reimagining Paul task force. And I just appointed them. They're just getting started this week. They have one month. I've given them a charge, which is to consider three scenarios. One is we come back in August like we're planning, and people move, students move into the dorms. But the virus isn't going to be gone by then. So we've still got to socially distance. We've got to do the mitigation. How are we going to do that? So how would you teach a class with 50 students that's crammed into a room that has 50 seats where there's six feet in between? How would we deliver the curriculum? Maybe some of what we ought to do in the fall should be online and some of it face-to-face. So this is a committee and how do we serve food in the dining halls? How do we, should we have a um, isolation quarter so that if students in a dorm start showing symptoms, they don't have to go home, they could go to a, an isolation unit that where there's some nurses, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first scenario is we come back, but we do things differently because we are different in light of COVID-19. Some of it's good kind of difference. Secondly, we come back, everything's fine. And then we have an outbreak. It would surge again. And there's a lot of the government is telling us we need to separate again. What would we do in that situation? And the third one is, What if we had to do everything online this fall? Now, none of us think the latter one is going to be the case, but we'd be irresponsible if we weren't thinking about what if that happened. So so from the curriculum standpoint, that's what I've really asked them to focus on. And let's try to be imaginative. Let's try to think of this not just as a a reactive response to COVID, but what kind of place do we want to be? And what about this is kind of neat that we could hold on to? There are some people, for example, I think some of our employees who probably found that telecommuting actually works better for them. Maybe they're more, maybe they're more productive at home. How do we think about that? So that's one aspect, is that that planning is going on right now. I gave them one month, which is not a lot of time, but <laughs> on May 18th, I want to see what ideas we have, and I want the campus to be involved in it. The second part of your question is kind of the moral imperative of this. And one of the things early on, you, you probably don't even remember this. Is I have to remind myself what we were doing. In the, before we sent everyone home, I was doing office hours where we were spaced out six feet apart. And students were in there and I was showing them the graph, you know, flattening the curve. We were trying to educate people because the whole country was trying to, what does that mean? What are we talking about? And it was especially important for students, the younger generation who at that time we were thinking, you're more likely gonna be carriers. And I remember saying to my own son, who's 32 years old, living in Austin, Texas, you know, young, single, professional. His office, everybody was sent to work at home. It's frustrating. But I kept saying, Kevin, you're doing this. Or some of his friends have children. So you're doing it for Hutch's grandpa. So Mm -hmm. Hutch gets more time with his grandpa. That's why you're doing this. Morally, you're doing it for others. And I think that our students have just done a great job with it. And, you know, I got a text last night from a local businessman who said, I just want to thank you because your decision, and it wasn't mine alone, but your decision to not have students come back from spring break, single-handedly has kept our cases in Knoxville low. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't give ourselves that much credit, but it probably helped a lot. Because we said, after spring break, you need to go home. Mm-hmm. So we've had, in Knoxville, we've been really fortunate. We've not had nearly the kind of cases that say Nashville's had, or other big cities. So, so I think the university also has a role in the community and I'm very aware that as the flagship in this state, when we act and we were making our decisions kind of before most of the other campuses, we play a role in the state. And then we we try to stay in close touch with the, the mayors, especially our two mayors, because I don't want to get out ahead of them and they, they try to not get out ahead of it. So we try to work together in that regard. Yeah, so
0: two follow-ups to that. One, will there be any sort of Institutionalized an initiative to educate students about because the information about coronavirus is changing so quickly. I, I'm involved in that research, and something that I wrote last week is now irrelevant to today. And so that's the problem. Yeah, and, and so that,
1: that's a good point, and that needs to be included in this reimagining fall. Our student, I don't know who does it, our student life, student health, we need educational programs on this that are not part of your regular class, but Mm -hmm. we all need education. You know, like when everybody's talking about testing, what are they talking about? And you know, the idea that if I have a test today that tells me I don't have it, it doesn't mean I don't have it in a week. Mm -hmm. Right. And then what is the antibody testing? And, how can I get that? That's what I want to take.
0: Yeah. I want to know I
1: have the antibodies and I'm good.
0: <laughs> yeah. And we, well, we still don't even, we, we still don't even know if you can, you and We don't know if those are
1: reliable, even if you, you know, yeah. So Hanson, you know, that's a really cool idea that we ought to talk about what, like sort of an ongoing student initiative around students want to know. And what do we know? And so a regular report out and probably uh. Something I would like to talk to Spencer, our, Dr. Greg about, because he's been so helpful to our our decision making. He's a wonderful person, and we need an, an ongoing education update. We got to think about that. So that's I've learned something from this interview right there. That's an idea. I'm, <laughs> I'm writing that down as we speak.
0: I'm glad to hear it. Um, it now, is crazy. I mean, idea. the recommendations. I'm a very very hyper news junkie and research all the time and even staying on top of it all day most days if I miss a day there's a new piece of information that allows me to be a more informed citizen about the decisions I'm making so it is a huge piece of it and then I guess another piece of this is that the world in general is changing quickly and so this will move beyond our like the the health aspect and so are there plans, does the university have any plans to include coronavirus in curriculum for relevant fields like economics and public health and biology um, and some of those? those?
1: I don't, I'm going to say probably not right now, but we probably should. I think one of the things we're going to see is a high demand for more majors and pro, uh, more, more graduates in public health public policy, uh, the kinds of things that the Baker Center does, but in in ways that students can, because I was hearing the other day a presentation that where we're going to need people, is there's going to be a high demand for people in public health. And that could be a great field to go into. Um, so so we, that, we need to incorporate that. And I'm guessing that that's going to begin to happen, but that's a really good, that's a good question, a good point. I might come looking for you to help us organize something for educating students. I, s-
0: I stay a little bit too updated on on coronavirus. <laughs> so you can yeah. read one I just had a policy brief published by the Baker Center that was Well
1: good for you. Congratulations.
0: Here reviewed by academics. What was it about? You. What was it about? Um, it was on the optimal duration of these suppression policies. So there was a some studies that were put out um, looking at The economic harm of a shutdown versus the economic harm of the virus itself. And so plotting when those two curves will meet and when a lockdown becomes economically not okay. Would you send me that? I absolutely would. Would you let me read that?
1: I would love to read it. That would be helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting conversation and and a lot of the, but, you know, those, their models are based on assumptions so we still don't That's know right. um, That's and, right. which is why i think some of these issues being included into curriculum at ut will be so important moving forward
1: well you know you you give me hope because one of the things that we, we need to help students with is doing just what you've done which is to look for facts one of the problems is one of the reasons i get I find myself watching TV and I'm just exhausted with it because it's mostly not facts. It, it's hard to get any facts. It's everyone's opinion and, and, and helping students, we need to do this anyway, but how do you use, how do you use and find credible information to make decisions? Uh, that's in any situation.
0: You'll get me on this, my, you'll get me on my soapbox here because this is one of the primary issues that I talk about pretty much all the time is that I think universities are doing a really great job in teaching students sort of operational and functional skills. But right. are we teaching, I mean, in the way that we consume news and the way that the world yeah. has become this sort of partisan uh-huh. thing um, is large is, is partly a result of us not adapting to new forms of media and understanding what is credible information. Yeah, I mean, we sort of focus on the false information piece a lot more than I think we should because another piece of it is yeah. you, some of these thi- like some of these things can be a fact, but... It just needs quite a few, but this could also be the case.
1: Well, and you know, we know psychologists have taught us this, that cognitively we look for information that reinforces our previously held beliefs. That's just human nature. And so that can be really dangerous because sometimes my previously held beliefs wrong. Mm-hmm. we based mm-hmm. on bad assumptions. You just use the word assumption. So yeah i that that's a that's a really important area we need to keep working on and that kind it kind of uh crosses the boundaries between what's done in the classroom and what's done outside of the classroom right
0: mhm absolutely i mean a lot of my experience that i have taken from i graduate in may so congratulations <laughs> of, thank you but a lot of my experience has been outside of the classroom
1: yeah. which
0: is is a hard thing because you can't force people to get involved right. outside of the classroom but otherwise so many of the skills that i have learned we, we don't learn in the classroom and so yeah. molding that into curriculum yeah. is a really challenging part of this conversation but it seems like
1: it's more important now than ever right right I I was exactly the same way in college when I look back on it the experiences that I first think of are things like oh all the things we did in student government uh I was a resident assistant I was an RA in the the halls the things I've learned from those experiences kind of carried me further honestly than what I learned in my English classes which I loved but you know, it, it, so that's why the whole, I'm a big believer in the whole package and the, and thinking of student development holistically. So part of it's very academic and in the classroom and other parts of it are, take place in other experiences. That's why we continue to encourage. We know, for example, Gallup did some surveys um, We know that students who had a lot of activities in college end up doing better on their jobs and in life kind of because of that, so.
0: Which gets to another point is given the uncertainty of what fall will look like, you you laid out three options which are very plausible according to the research, some more than others, but how do we continue? So given a circumstance where we are limited in some way how do we continue to support extracurricular involvement that's meaningful?
1: Yeah well I think I I was just listening to Frank Cuevas talk this morning he's our interim vice chancellor for student life and he's interviewing for the finalist for the for the job and he was talking about and I, I think he's so right you gotta all always continue to learn and and look at what we've been doing. Look at places where I probably should have handled that differently. Try to learn from it. I think we have to learn from this COVID experience. What have we learned? And we've learned that there are some important things that we should be doing virtually. There are also the, the psychological and mental health needs of our students. We knew We knew they were significant. I think we've learned more about that. Um, but we've also learned that we have some capacities we didn't know we had. We are really adaptive. I mean, you don't think of universities oftentimes as being that way. (laughs) We really, all of us, the students, the faculty, and staff, look what we did. That's something to be like, you know, that's good. Adaptivity is a great skill for life in general. So I want us all to, And this kind of relates to a previous question. We were in the process of doing some strategic visioning for the campus before this started. Who do we want to be in the future? How do we want to be this great land grant in this state of Tennessee? What does that mean about what we do now that we should be doing differently? We're now going to incorporate into that, and oh, by the way, we had this COVID experience. How does this also teach us uh, and in, and inform who we want to be as a campus,
0: for sure. And and so, want to wrap up a little bit of the, the COVID conversation. But so, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel said this, and I think it was it was well received. But nobody likes to quote. Nobody likes to hear this, but it is truth. We are not living through the final phase of this crisis. We are still at its beginning. We still have to live with this virus for a long time, and so. Yeah. Off of that question, what are the long-term implications? We've already talked about it a little bit, but with regard to education, I mean, how big is the shift towards online education? What are the sort of real yeah. substantive effects of this pandemic?
1: You know, I think it's going to, we, I mean, a lot of people are saying this, it's going to change a lot of our cultural norms. I thought about the fact that in December I stood there at commencement and shook hands with 1500 people. I got sick right after that too. <laughs> and at the time I jokingly <laughs> said, well, it's from shaking all those hands. I bet that's a, that's a practice that goes by the wayside. I don't know, but just when you start with something, just that kind of elemental, but also significant in how we connect with one another. Uh, I think I think those kinds of things will change. I think we've also learned that intentionally connecting with others is super important, that we we, we have taken for granted, oh, I get to run into that person. They know how I feel about them. Um, and, and I think we've learned that intentionality is important. I think in terms of how we what it means to be the university, we're going to redefine that. And I think in good ways. I think we need much more flexible curriculum. I think our scheduling, the way we schedule classes. So one of the things I want this task force to do is say, why are we hung up with what, 16 week semester? Is that the way we need to do things? Could we not have break that down into three different five week sessions? We could if we wanted to. Could we could we say that there's there's certain things that we think we deliver better online, and we want to encourage. We're going to require restarting to do this prerequisite online, and then the next course is going to be. How do we think differently about how we teach labs? I just so I think all of it. I think the biggest issue will be in the short term. Um, the large gatherings. Mm-hmm. You know how do we. When are we gonna have a rock concert again? And we wanna get back to the place where we're all really comfortable. Now we're, we'll get a vaccine one of these days and that's then we'll be kind of back to things like we feel good about. Until then, I think we're always gonna be thinking about distancing ourselves physically until we have the vaccine. And, and whatever that means, and we'll learn more as this goes, and we'll learn when we, when we have to wear masks and when we don't.
0: For sure. And so I usually end these interviews with um, some rapid fire questions, but I have okay. one more. I have one more question that I think you would like to answer. You have time okay. for for one more. Sure. Cool. So you have made it a point to be connected with the student body. Um, I'm one of those students in the. like the class of 2020 that has had a different chancellor every single year of our undergrad experience and needless to say that's not been a great experience i think for the university a little less for students in some regard but it's made for a very tumultuous experience. And one of the ways that you've done, in my opinion, an exceptional job of of being connected with students is one, you came and spoke at my student organization and we were so happy to have you, but also you've been hosting weekly office hours, which is a huge thing. And so somebody posed this question to ask you, and I thought it was great, but what's just an example of one of the most interesting, impactful office hour moments you've had? this year
1: i can tell you the most Um, right after i started this job a woman named frankie uh, who works in animal sciences walked in and she came in with a guy named tom who works in athletics and sports information and they wanted to talk to me about organ donation and i thought what in the heck are we going to talk about she had a daughter who was needing a kidney. He was living with someone else's liver and they were advocating for better policies at UT. They said, they said to me, UT makes it impossible to donate an organ. And I go, how could that be? What are you talking about? Well, we say you had to use your sick leave. And if you didn't have any sick leave, you had to use your vacation leave. If you didn't have any vacation leave and sick leave, you had to do it unpaid time off. And I said, well, that's not good. We're gonna change that. And I went to Randy Boyd, because it turns out it's kind of a system issue. Eventually, he had to get it cleared by the governor's office, but we changed that policy. And in the course of that, it took about six months, which in university time is pretty quick. But Mm -hmm. uh, in the course of that time, I got to know Frankie and Tom better. Frankie's daughter was uh, living with a new kidney that was working great. She ended up getting sick from a another situation when you're when you have a transplanted organ you're vulnerable and her name was Laura McGinnis and Laura uh, died before we got that new policy implemented although she knew her mother had told her we're going to have a new policy that makes it easier for people like me to donate anymore because she had decided to donate one in Laura's honor because she wasn't the same blood type as Laura. We named that the Laura McGinnis Organ transplant policy. There's never been a policy name for anyone. I'm really proud of that. Now that affects a very narrow set of a population, but if I hadn't been doing those office hours, they've been working on it for 18 months. Couldn't get anybody to really talk to them about it. I'm proud of that because sometimes in office hours, people walk in with problems that I can actually solve. A lot of times, it's not a solvable problem, or sometimes people don't come in with a problem. They just want to talk about things. But I think the office hours communicates, I wanted it to communicate to the whole community that I'm accessible. That's one thing I heard people wanted in a chancellor. And I also want to communicate that, you know what? Not everything's impossible. These big organizations, bureaucracies, we can change things. And so that's a small example. There's uh, many others of things that I think we've been able to solve. Some things are still in progress. Um, but I will continue. Continue to do them i am energized by them i'm doing them virtually uh and i i get i've had parents on these virtual virtual ones uh so it, it's been one of the more meaningful parts of what i've done and i've gotten to know frankie and tom very well i'm really proud of them and so there was one how's that absolutely
0: well and in a time of crisis it, it- very much highlights the importance of accessibility and and just being there to to listen. Um, so we'll move on to the rapid fire question. So you can give a quick answer. Um, so first one is what is your favorite quarantine activity thus far?
1: Um, I like going for a walk in my beautiful neighborhood. Try to do it every day.
0: That's a good one. I stumped President Boyd on this one. Most embarrassing moment as UT Chancellor. It's a tough question.
1: I showed up at an event where I was moving really fast going through the day. It happened recently on a Zoom meeting. I showed up at an event to, and I thought I was... (laughs) acknowledging one person and i was there to acknowledge another person i wasn't quite hadn't quite done my homework so i started with hey so who called this meeting it turns out i called it that was embarrassing i i think i recovered and i, and I got my script by my, I, somebody was texting me i got the script and then i recovered i think that was pretty embarrassing
0: well, I might, you know, get in, I might get in trouble for telling this story, but I have heard through the grapevine that, that you're, uh, during a, a press conference, they could not figure out where this classical music was coming from. Oh, in yeah.
1: The <laughs> that was bad. That was bad. <laughs> that was embarrassing. Okay, that, tri- that, that takes the, uh, th- that was worse. See, I've just blanked that out because that was so
0: bad. <laughs> and for those Maybe who don't know.
1: handled yeah. that so well. You know what happened? My, I, I, I will never explain it. My old phone, I don't play music on my phone. I don't have headsets in, I never play, but there is f- music that came with it. It was in my purse. It started playing. <laughs> Classical, and it was like a big, uh, I think it was John Philip Souza March. That was bad. Hey, and well, then I couldn't figure out how to get it off. Well,
0: so. part of, of President Boyd's recorded speech will have a little bit of background music so nothing to worry (laughs) about but it was
1: over I said to him do I still have a job
0: (laughs) (laughs) and um the last one what is the last book you read that you really liked
1: um it was uh by Brene Brown Daring to Lead and I'm reading another by her right now she I love her work she talks about um being authentic and vulnerable and not letting shame drive your life. Renee Brown, I love her work. So
0: she has a great Netflix special too. So
1: yes, she
0: does. Um, So to end it all out, I I just want to give you one last thing to talk about. And um, this has been a very psychologically traumatic experience for a lot of people. I don't need to be worried about, but like doing the research, it's like, I mean, like I haven't slept well because you read about this and you're informed and it's like, wow, I mean, a lot, this is really, really, really bad and could be really bad and it really bothers you. And so back in March, sort of when this was first happening, you tweeted out an article with a caption that really stuck with me. And so sort of end our conversation on a positive note, Can you give me an example, something simple or unflashy that has happened at the University of Tennessee, whether it be students, staff, the community that has made this our finest hour, as your tweet put it.
1: Just watching everyone jump in here together. The silos disappeared. Everyone just moved towards this problem as one, I have not had a single faculty or staff member complain to me about what you're doing. You're making me go home or whatever. Just watching people care about one another, care about our students and care about the mission. I'll always be in a way forever grateful that we, I was the one here when we went through this because I've seen the real soul of this university. When I watched that Josh Dobbs video, it made me cry. And I, and what made me cry was the smiles on the students' faces. It doesn't happen at other places that there's no concept of, I don't think that's like balls for life. And it's not just athletes. It's everybody. There's something about this place. You're different for having come here. And understood what it means because being a volunteer really means something. I say that all the time. This has shown that more than anything I ever could have imagined. So, as as kind of upsetting as this is, I am just thrilled that I was the chancellor when this happened to get to be part of it.
0: That's great. Well, Ch- Chancellor Plowman, thank you so much for making the time, um, and and thank you so thank much for you. being here. Hey, you. Thank you for tuning in to As It Stands. As It Stands is brought to you by The Daily Beacon, the editorial independent student newspaper at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and your host, me, Hanson Sale. A special thanks to Evan Newell, Austin Orr, the Howard H. Baker Center for Public Policy, and the Coronavirus-19 Outbreak Response Experts Team at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. For up-to-date information about COVID-19 and its impact on Tennessee visit core19.utk.edu. I hope you enjoy the show. Remember to read widely, practice social distancing, and join me for the next episode of As It Stands. I hope you have a great week and see you then.